um, and SRHE for organising this event. I'm very pleased to be here. It's my first time. And it's lovely to meet old colleagues again um, and to make a whole bunch of new um, colleagues. I also want to say something that I wasn't planning to say, but I just find it extraordinarily interesting that we have Shannon, who comes from the North America here, and me, who comes from Australia, now in Canada. Um, and I would say the Australian system is really similar to the English one, right? You know, like it's very, very, very similar. I recognise almost everything. Not everything, but almost everything. You've got no idea how different the North American system is. Like it looks the same, it looks similar in many respects, but it's really quite different. And all the words are different. <laughs> Not just the words. Yeah, the words are included, and I've got a little bit about that because I have to. I have to do a bit of translation. But just there's a lot of cultural resonances that are completely um, that you don't get unless you've actually made those transitions yourself, and you all of a sudden you have to learn to live in this this new environment and one and one thing that I have learned is that the student affairs profession is really big and important um, in North America and um, it's really it, I'm really pleased to see Shannon trying to make links between that and actually pedagogy and teaching and learning because that's one of my critiques of that in of that profession that, that it's, it's developing independently of um, the discourses around teaching and learning. It's really good to see someone from North America um, actually trying to, to say, well, look, we've got to get these things um, to talk together. So it was really nice um, to hear that. So today my topic is on... <laughs> I was obviously in a bad mood when I wrote this. Um, <laughs> employability skills and generic skills are no better than competency-based training and deny students access to knowledge. I'm infamous for this position, okay? You just, um, you just need to know that. Um, so my, my argument is that employability skills and generic skills are the other side of competency-based training. So while competency-based training focuses on specific workplace tasks and roles, generic and employability skills focus on putatively transferable um, skills. And this argument has been developed over many years. It's not an individual uh, thing. It's, it's with this broad team of people um, in both Australia um, and in um, Canada. So because I'm a good teacher, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you. Um, I'm first going to situate generic and employability skills in the skills discourse um, and talk to you about the TINA argument. Um, TINA is there is no alternative. And whenever you hear a TINA argument, you need to, your antenna, antenna I need to go up and think, well, actually, what's going on here? So I'm going to talk about the TINA argument um, in the skills discourse. I'm going to show you how that's situated in, the human, cap, in human capital theory. Um, and in human capital beliefs about education, the key assumptions. And I'm going to look at the evolution of the school's dis discourse, which has now gone beyond vocational education to encompass all of education, including higher education, as we said it would. Um, I'm then going to look at the problem of dichotomies, because what we've got is a polarising and evan evangelical debate. Um, and that sets up all sorts of issues and problems, which means that we can't actually unpack stuff. And, and have a look. Then I'm going to get into why knowledge matters using the sociology of Basil Bernstein and use that to critique skills policy by looking at what's missing in our skills discourse.
So the Tina argument. The argument is that the pace of change means that we have to constantly adapt and innovate. Nothing is permanent, all is in flux. Tina, we need new skills, transferable skills, or we'll be left behind. And the World Economic Forum is one of the key bodies that's running this line. It's been enormously successful um, in embedding um, this whole discourse. Um, extraordinarily successful. And they say, you know, like they, they do this uh, report every year, they say that there's four drivers of change, specific technological um, advances, ubiquitous high-speed uh, internet, artificial intelligence, widespread adoption of big data, analytics and cloud technology, and that this is what's going to dominate things in the future. And we've been told for years that we must keep up and that, that this is the key imperative for economic prosperity and all of this is situated within notions of economic growth. So then we have the skills discourse which most countries have and this is um, the Canadian version. I'm not having a go at Daniel Monroe because I think he's actually a very good researcher, I have to say that. Um, but just that, that this is from a report that, that he did for a, an outfit called the Conference Board of Canada um, which is sort of like a national think tank although they don't ever use the word national in Canada, pan-Canadian think tank. Um, and so these are the, 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 five, um, the five reasons why skills matter, that they're the key determinants for economic and productivity growth. Education is actually, the word education is there in that one, that individuals with strong foundational skills are, are more likely to finish school. Um, and have post-secondary education and have good careers, all of which is true. Um, that individuals with advanced skills in education do better in the labour market? Yes, they do. Um, that highly educated Canadians are more active in their communities um, and in politics? Yes, they are. Um, and that advanced skills in higher education is associated with better physical and mental health? Yes, it is. But what this discourse does is it runs, it runs the risk of narrowing what we mean by skills and education um, and undermining the very basis of these sorts of um, things that's being discussed. And I just have to give you a little bit of language here. In North America, community colleges, which are the analogue of FE colleges here, um, are situated in the higher education sector. They're not in a separate sector. Um, that has benefits and drawbacks, but um, just so you know. So when people talk about higher education um, in Canada uh, and in the US, they talk, they're including colleges in that, although they're usually just thinking about universities, if, if the truth be known. So, but it's, it's not just any skills um, that are important, according to the World Economic Forum, which, as I said, is very influential. The newest enthusiasm is 21st century skills, and that has three areas, foundational literacies, um, which is how students apply core skills to everyday tasks, and that's the usual suspects there, literacy, numeracy, blah, blah, blah. Um, competencies, how students approach complex challenges, such as critical thinking, creativity, again, the usual suspects. And then stuff that's been lurking on the edges, but is now right now included in the skills discourse as a result of all this, are character qualities. Um, which is how students approach their changing environment. And this is what I'm really, I, I think this is really a big problem because the skills discourse is colonising all aspects of our lives. Skills are now defined as character qualities and there's a normative view of what people are like. Let's just laugh for a moment. 
um, it's and I think the problem with this is it's based it's deeply based on Western individualism that doesn't tolerate any other um, way of being beyond the individualized individual including those who were born and raised in Western culture I think it is a form of cruelty um, to insist that people who are shy be forced um, to um, participate in voluble ways in class as a requirement of getting a participation grade. Um, I think, you know, like, unless you put supports and scaffolding in place for students, it, I, I think it's a form of cruelty. Um, and that's, that's to say nothing about students who are born in other cultures, um, which are not based on Western individualism, which have a much more collective orientation. Um, so I think that there's a big problem with all this. So we've gone beyond defining attributes which are required by employers to defining who we should be um, in, in this discourse. And this is the latest iteration of human capital theory, which is the current orthodoxy in education and has been since the 1980s at least, where there is a direct linear connection between education, which produces skills, which produces higher productivity, which produces higher GDP, except that it doesn't. Um, and, and this is meant to apply at every level, <coughs> this connection. At the level of the individual, individuals do all that. Um, at the level of the group, do all that. At the lecture of the, the sector, the economy, it applies at every single level. It also applies to discourses about equity. So equity is um, defined as underrepresentation in the labour market. Um, and outcomes in the labour market. And that one of the reasons we have to include people from disadvantaged groups in higher education is so that they have the same opportunities in the labour market. Now, of course they should have the same opportunities in the labour market, but that's not the primary reason uh, for including people in higher education. It's to do with social justice. So employability skills builds on the individual of human capital theory. Now, this quote is from C.B. McPherson. I have to say something about C.B. McPherson. He says the individual, and he, he unpicks the, what he calls the possessive bourgeois individual. Um, and he says the individual was seen neither as a moral whole nor as a part of a larger social whole, but as an owner of himself, writing in the 1960s. Individuals, he says, are proprietors of their persons and society consists of relations of exchange between proprietors. Not only is C.B. McPherson a fabulous theorist, his writing is beautiful and I swoon when I read it. And I, and I find his writing so lovely it gets in the way of actually me reading it because I'm just appreciating it. You know, it's just beautiful. You've got to read him. He's fantastic. So... This is the self-maximising rational individual who plunges into the labour market to exchange their skills, which are a personal property that they have invested in through their choices in about their investments. And Brown, Phil Brown and Manuel Soto Otero argue that we've had a new evolution in this discourse of human capital theory, that the individual is now... Is now Previous discourses have had this notion of trainability. Someone is able to be trained to, you know, pick up the skills um, that they need. He's, they say that we've gone beyond that um, to the concept of a market performance, where individuals need to be market ready and able to enact a market performance in a move that further shifts responsibility from the employer to the individual to invest in their skills. 
Employers, they say, want individuals who can hit the ground running, requiring job seekers to demonstra demonstrate that but they have both generic, specific and generic hard and soft skills. So they have to invest in the self, anticipate what the market requires. And this envisages a worker not only with sensibilities and orientations required by employers, but it's a change in the social contract, which has been in place for a long time, from employment making sure we have a strong labour market with strong social protections to employability. I've and the, by your slide. Could you explain your thinking of the picture? They're ready for a performance. It's a performance yes, okay. it's a performance. performance. Yeah, that's right. Yes, there is always a little reason why I have it. And my <laughs> students, it's a game I have with my students. They have to, sometimes it's a bit obscure. Um, <laughs> okay, so the, so, so, so the individual is responsible for continuing decisions about their investments. And this is the stuff behind badges and micro-credentials and stuff like that. And we've just been through a missions process, you know, for our PhD and masters, and these badges and micro-credentials are now a feature on CVs, you know, that people, um, you know, that these are the credentials um, that they've got. It's also part of the um, broader discourse of quality outcomes and performance, and there's this article by Stephen Ball from 2003, which I love, um, called The Teacher's Soul and the Terrors of Performativity. And he's talking about teachers here, but it applies to all of us, I think, where we're represented and encouraged to think about ourselves as individuals who calculate about ourselves, add value to ourselves, improve productivity, strive for um, excellence, and live an existence of calculation. How many people here know what their H-index is? I mean, it's, it's in Australia, you've got to know what your H-index is. People even put it on their CVs, you know. Um, so this is what, you know, this whole thing about calculation is. So we've seen an evolution of the skills discourse, which started in the 80s uh, here. I mean, it borrowed stuff from the US, but here at a system level. <coughs> with competency-based education and competency-based training and employability skills. Now, higher education would do nothing as vulgar as that um, to have task-focused curriculum. And they didn't really get swept up in this discourse until the whole graduate attributes thing, which was sort of about, you know, the, the person and their qualities and what they could do. And that was mainly higher education. So in Australia, we knew which sector you were talking about. If you talked about employability skills, that was vocational education. If you talked about graduate attributes, that was universities. You know, it was understood. Um, but now we've got 21st century skills and outcomes-based education, which is for everyone. So we are going through a program review. I have the great misfortune to have to be the program director during this period. And um, we have to write everything in terms of outcomes-based education. This is University of Toronto, right? There's an engineer who's leading the process. Um, she's very nice, um, but you know, it's very, it's very structured, right? So we have to do it in this, play, in this way. So it's all about skills for work, for the market, for the changes that are coming in work. And so the other manifestations of this are micro-credentials, stackable credentials, badges, e-passports, and the co-curricular record. So this is not a, sheep, a wolf in sheep's clothing, it is a wolf in wolf's clothing. Um, and all of this is essential for the gig economy, when increasing numbers in wealthy countries don't have access to permanent jobs and the benefits that this brings. They've got to engage in this stuff to continually prove their self-improvement in the market as the, as the possessive, bourgeois possessive individual. 
And all this is defined in outcomes that are demonstrable, observable, and assessable, although there's more trouble um, here that causes lots of angst, the assessment issue, because, you know, like they're there, they exist, why can't we assess them? You know, like it should be straightforward, and it's not. And that's what the literature is, the problems of assessment. Um, so the issue isn't defining the skills, it's how we can assess them, how we can and how we can demonstrate that we have done so. Um, and that's what you do in your program uh, reviews. And this is being used to drive reforms in many systems. So just to give you an example, we have a new government in Ontario, in Canada, that was elected in 28, conservative government, slightly more genteel version of Trump, not much more genteel, but slightly. His main election campaign was a buck a beer. Um, and we thought that they, you know, the best thing that you can hope with such a government is that they will do nothing, but unfortunately that's not the case. Um, so the government has introduced plans where they are going to go for performance-based funding, which is currently at 1.4% for universities and 1.2% for colleges, that's what it is now, to 60% by 2024-2025, based on um, 10... Um, ten uh, outcomes, six which will be based on skills and job outlooks and four on economic and community impact. And one of these is going to be skills and competencies. And it's probably going to be developed by the Higher Education Quality Council of Ontario, which is a sort of government-funded policy think tank. Um, and they say that the challenge of skills development is not going away. It's imperative that we leverage Canada's huge investment in public education to ensure that our country and citizenry are equipped to sustain a competitive economy with the opportunities, blah, blah, blah. Right, okay, you know, you get the general, um, the general drift. This isn't really cooked yet. No, none of us have got any idea what it means um, and how they're going to do it because none of it's defined. But it's going to account for 60% of funding uh, in not such a long time. Um, so the problem is that this leads to unhelpful dichotomies. We have an evangelizing um, uh, discourse. And I've been looking at the US literature a lot lately, and there's been a big move to competency-based degrees in both you know, uh, college systems and in universities. And it's all framed in the language of empowerment, just as it was here and just as it was in Australia and in the other countries where, where this was introduced, mirrors exactly the debates that we've been having for 30 years. And it's very annoying uh, because it, it, it occurs in blissful ignorance um, of our debates. We don't care. You, you know, we don't matter. It's a North American-centric view of the world. We're doing it, therefore we've discovered it, and it must be good. Um, and I find that deeply frustrating. But anyway... Um, but, this, but what this does is it leads to un, this unhelpful um, dualism and Andrew Sayer explains that the problem with dualisms is that meanings or associations on each side of the dichotomy leak into each other um, so that a phenomenon becomes either one thing or the other without the possibility of examining the complexity in each or, or without the possibility that there might be alternative positions. And so in the case of competency-based education, you're either for us or against us. You're either with the side of progressivism or you're with the dead weight of conservatism and tradition. But I think a third position uh, is possible. It's possible to argue for an approach to education, including vocational education, that is progressive precisely because 
it would help students gain access to the knowledge they need to navigate an uncertain world, including and particularly students from disadvantaged backgrounds who have been denied access to this knowledge in an unequal education system. So now I'm going to shift focus to look at my key concern on why um, knowledge, um, why knowledge matters, and how the skills discourses leave knowledge out. So what's missing from all forms of skills discourses is knowledge, and the argument is that knowledge is ephemeral, that it's changing, and it's always a mouse click away. Um, and the problem is that this confuses information with knowledge. Knowledge, as I define it, relates to theoretical systems of meaning which have you know, internal relationships between concepts. Information does not do that and does not provide that kind of um, access. And here I'm drawing on the work of Basil Bernstein who argued that access to knowledge is a key question for social justice because it provides access um, to society's uh, conversation. He argues that theoretical knowledge provides the grounds for democracy, provides the grounds for participation. And this is, and in drawing like he, I mean he's basically drawn on Durkheim, he's developed Durkheim um, in different ways. But basically what he's arguing that following Durkheim is that knowledge enables us to connect the past, the present and the future, to, con to, to connect material and immaterial objects and events. Um, it allows us to transcend the limits of our individual experiences, to see beyond what we experience to the real nature of relations in the natural and social world. I also draw on critical realism as a philosophical premise, which, which I don't have time to go in here, but I think that that's an important part um, of this, this whole thing. But importantly, it's the way that we conduct debates in our fields of practice and the way that we conduct debates um, in society. We're not arguing that everyone has to become experts in literature or physics. Um, but we are arguing that, that students then access to disciplinary systems of meaning and most importantly to the criteria that is used to judge knowledge claims. This would be very helpful, for example, in the vaccination debate, um, you know, as just um, one example. So we argue that... Um, in, in the very wealthy countries like the UK, still is, um, Australia, Canada and so on, um, that where we have near universal systems um, of education, that social inequality is now mediated by the type of action, uh, type of education that students have access to and less so on whether they are excluded. Now, I am getting, I am getting on and when I, in 1975, when I left school, I was age 15 um, and most people did that. Most people left school when they were 15. You had a tiny elite go to university, 3% maybe, and then you had another elite go on to do apprenticeships. Um, we called them the, the labour aristocracy. Um, but most of us could leave school and get jobs, and that's how the system worked. In a universal system, if you are excluded from education, you are excluded from society. You must have access to post-secondary education as the passport to participation in society. So that's why participation matters, social inclusion matters, um, now more than ever um, before. But the, there's a problem with this, because the effort is on in getting people who are included in education. But we argue that that doesn't take into account 
the types of education that students are able to participate in and the extent to which that mediates access um, to knowledge. Um, and we argue that universal education in our systems actually mediates social inequality by the type of access that students have um, to education. And here I think there is an important distinction for us to make um, between social inclusion and social justice. Um, social inclusion asks who's excluded? Why aren't they included? What's wrong with them? It's a deficit-based discourse. Whereas social justice, on the other hand, asks a question about relations of power. Who gets access to the elite positions? Who doesn't? What are the relations of power? And so we need to have a theory of access. Um, and um, I'm, going to, I'm going to come back to that um, in a moment. So the, um, we, we have a theory of access, but not a theory of, of knowledge. And Michael Young, whose work I use a lot, has been distinguishing between powerful knowledge and knowledge of the powerful. So the problem that we have in our debates is the progressive discourse argues that, um, that knowledge is um, relative, basically, and that its production is mediated by people who are very privileged. That's true. It is. And so that's why we need to distinguish between powerful knowledge and knowledge of the powerful. Powerful knowledge provides epistemic access to the natural and social worlds, even if it is revisable in the light of new evidence. Knowledge of the powerful is shaped by unequal access um, to knowledge. It is monopolised precisely because it is powerful. Now, knowledge will always bear the marks of its production because it's socially produced. It will always bear the marks of the people who produced it, and this means it will bear the marks of the, the social elites. But we can't reduce the um, knowledge to the conditions of its production. It will always bear, bear the marks of the social elites, but it is our best efforts in understanding the world. So this is an argument for democratising access to knowledge acquisition and production. It's not a zero-sum game. We're not arguing against um, valuing other ways of knowledge. People need access to both. Um, and this changes the shape of knowledge. For example, we need to be arguing for access to the academy for people who are disadvantaged. And when that happens, it changes the nature of the academy. Um, just as the, act, uh, the entry of women um, resulted not only in changes to disciplines and changes within disciplines, academic disciplines, but also to the emergence of new disciplines such as women's studies. Um, it, it contributed to the emergence of cultural studies and so on. So we're arguing for um, the democratisation of access to the communities of knowledge producers. And I argue that vet students, vocational education students, need access to knowledge, to the theoretical knowledge um, of their practice so that they can participate in debates and controversies in their field. I come from the college sector. I used to teach community development. That's where I started in 1994, prior to the introduction of competency-based training. And we would teach stuff like um, uh, social policy. 
as a, as a subject. And we would teach different theories of power and different theories of social policy. And this really mattered because if you're a housing worker and you're confronting a government bureaucrat who couldn't give a shit one way or the other because he or she, usually he, had a deficit-based view of who their clients were, they needed to know that stuff in order to be able to engage in practice in their field. When the competency-based training framework came in, that was reduced to develop a policy for your organisation procedural knowledge. So students were only being given access to procedural knowledge. That's what got me on my path, that's what drove my PhD and everything that I've done subsequently to that because those students were denied access to knowledge. It gives people ways of thinking and talking about themselves. One example that I will never ever forget um, is uh, we had a, uh, um, an essay where students had to write what theories of community development do they most support and why? And one student um, who was a uh, Vietnamese refugee um, wrote an essay in bad English um, along the lines of, um, in my heart I'm a Marxist because this is what I want for people, but in my head I'm a liberal because this is what I have seen. Um, and so it gave her a way of talking about her world which she didn't have otherwise. And I've seen so many women who when they first come in contact with ideas of feminism, it's like a, a, a transformation um, happens because they're all of a sudden they say, it's not my fault, I'm not stupid, this is what's happened to me. You know, so it gives people ways of thinking about their own lives as well as um, what their field of practice um, should be like. And this matters because, um, as Bernstein said, to know whose voice is speaking in society, in your field of practice, is the beginnings of one's own voice. And Joe Muller explains that to cross the line without knowing it is to be at the mercy of the power inscribed in the line. The question is how to cross. And that means paying detailed attention to the politics of redescription and translation and to the means required for successful crossing. So it, what I used to think I was doing as a, as a college teacher was giving my students the passport they needed to cross boundaries under conditions of their choosing. So just to quickly turn to the Bernsteinian framework. So Bernstein, following, um, following uh, Durkheim, distinguishes between theoretical knowledge, which he called esoteric knowledge, or sacred knowledge because of its origins in religion, um, and everyday knowledge, which they also call mundane knowledge, or profane knowledge because it was knowledge of the profane everyday world. And they argue or he, um, that, they, that these two forms of knowledge have different structures, and are embedded in different systems of meaning. The academic disciplines are general principled knowledge, they, um, and Bernstein called them singulars because they're about a singular field of knowledge, and each um, has its different boundaries. So psychology is different to sociology. I tried to get some of my students to understand that with great difficulty. Um, and ac the academic disciplines have decontextualized features which are not tied to the specific and can be used in other contexts. And this allows it, this is what allows it to be used to think the unthinkable and the not yet thought. It exists as specialized symbolic structures of expert knowledge. The applied disciplines are occupationally recontextualized disciplinary knowledge that underpin professional and vocational practice. They're the theoretical toolbox. Um, for practice and, and Bernstein referred to these as regions because they sit at the interface between 
um, the academy and the field of practice, and they 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 regionalise knowledge um, according to the problems posed by the field of practice, and inputs from both transform um, knowledge. And what we argue in our work is that vocational education must face both ways. It must face towards the field of practice, as should professional education, and to the theory and to the, the knowledge base um, of practice. And this requires multiple processes of recontextualization. On the other hand, everyday knowledge is contextually specific and it consists of oral, local, context-dependent knowledge, which is tacit. And its usefulness is determined by the context, and this is where it's learnt. So rather than a system of meaning, it's important to understand the context. So you have to understand if you're at your grandparents' place or in the football club or in church, you have to understand what's appropriate and what's, what can, what, what's okay um, in each. Bernstein also talks about classification, framing, recontextualization, and recognition rules. So the academic disciplines are strongly classified. They have insulated boundaries with specialised languages, rules as to what counts, texts, speakers, and so on. Classification is the what of knowledge, and it can be more or less strongly classified. If it's strongly classified, it maintains its disciplinary boundaries. It distinguishes each field of each discipline. So I would say to my students, this is sociology, that is psychology, they are different, and here is how um, they, they are different. Weak boundaries, he argued, um, for example, I would argue some forms of problem-based learning take an object of study as a feature of the world and not the structures of knowledge. And this requires sophisticated understanding of theoretical knowledge to mobilise it as a pragmatic recruitable resource if it's to be used in specific um, problem solving. Framing is the how of knowledge. And um, Bernstein argues that the structures of knowledge have pedagogic implications. If you're looking at a hierarchical discipline, for example, physics, you have to know what have to understand what becomes before in order to understand what comes after. He argued that many of the social sciences and um, uh, are structured as languages, so that within each discipline, so for example, sociology, you have conflict theory, um, you have, um, oh God, I can't remember, I'm so jet-lagged, what's in sociology? Um, you have conflict theory, you have feminist theory, you have different languages and people need to understand it. For example, one problem in economics is that many economists only understand one language in their field, which is a big problem for us. Um, so students need access to the languages and they need to understand who the speakers are and so on. And so knowledge is translated for curriculum and pedagogy through processes of recontextualization, which delocates knowledge from its field of production and relocates it in pedagogic discourse. And that's quite a complicated um, process. But the important idea here is that there is a different recontextualizing principle for academic curriculum and for vocational professional curriculum. The purpose of academic curriculum is to induct students into a field of knowledge. My youngest son did philosophy and he, once he became, once he was thinking like a philosopher, he couldn't do anything else. You know, and I remember once we took him to a music festival and he wanted me to go along to some of these bloody talks and I said, no, it's too much like work, you know, I'm not going. Um, this is when he was in his honours year and he went along to some talk on happiness and he puts up his hand on the line, no, he told me about it afterwards, he's really perplexed. He said, I put up my hand and I asked the woman, where does happiness reside? In the, in, the, in, the, in the brain or in the body? And she just looked at me and said, I don't know. 
And, um, and so, you know, that was an example of how that shaped him um, and, and his identity. Whereas um, for vocational and professional um, curriculum, the principle of recontextualization is the, is, um, the requirements of the field of practice. So it needs to, it needs to know it, the curriculum needs to face both ways. And students need the recognition rules. They need to recognise the different forms of knowledge and how to engage with each. For example, they need to hear distinguish between two types of mammals, um, which have many similarities, both walk on four legs and so on. You know, so they need to be able to understand uh, what the differences are. And the Bernsteinian community argues that strongly classified and framed knowledge provides working class students with better access to that knowledge because it's visible. So it's important to emphasise um, it's important to emphasise that this is not an argument that theoretical knowledge is true, um, that it is fact, but it is an argument that the normative there needs to be a normative I ideal for curriculum that is for the, um, that the pursuit of truth matters um, as important, even if we know we're never going to get there, and even if we know that our knowledge, our disciplines, and our applied disciplines are always revisable. They are nonetheless our best, our flawed best understanding so far, but they are revisable in the light of new evidence. And what's important is that students have access to the criteria to judge knowledge claims. I think if we do that, then we've done our job, basically. So I just want to quickly critique um, skills policy. So there's two main approaches in post-secondary education. The first is to tie qualifications more tightly to jobs and employers' requirements. And this is to blame education for skills mismatches. Um, and the argument is that colleges and universities are to blame for not producing graduates with the right skills needed for jobs, and therefore we need to make sure that they produce a curriculum that is more tightly tied to jobs. I get so many PhD students who want to write a thesis like that, um, and it drives me insane. And the problem is that this is, would be a mistake and it would limit students' opportunities because if we tie qualifications more tightly to jobs, the point is that they mostly don't work in those jobs. In liberal market economies like ours, in unregulated occupations, most students don't end up working in the job for which they're specifically trained. But it's different in the regulated occupations. And if we would try to narrow what they do even further, then we're going to limit their opportunities. The second approach is generic or employability skills or graduate attributes. And um, this is becoming stronger particularly through the discourse of 21st century skills. And in, in Australia, policymakers want both policy options at the same time. They, they want to tie qualifications more tightly to jobs, particularly, particularly to the technical aspects of jobs, and to have other aspects of qualifications focused on generic skills, which they hope will prepare graduates for a range of jobs. Both approaches are problematic and would not help for, fix skills matches. And the problem is, is this is what Anne-Marie was talking about, earlier, knowledge, the application of knowledge in a field um, depends on the de that field and the domain knowledge that you require. So generic skills are a dream in, in our view. The use of any skills requires knowledge and in particular the domain of the knowledge in which it's being exercised. Dealing with a meltdown in a crèche um, is completely different to um, problem solving in an oil rig, yet both are called problem solving. Um, the issue is that solving problems in each requires specific knowledge and skills that underpins practice. 
um, in that area. And this contradiction has been noted in diverse literature that, set, that argues that the development of specialised expertise is essential for developing generic skills, if you actually want generic skills, like problem solving. Generic skills are often best acquired in the context of mastering specific disciplinary trade or professional expertise. And this leads to the problem of what um, Bernstein talks about, the problem of trainability, where we've replaced occupational identity with a more individualised identity which we change and invest um, in ourselves over time. I won't read his entire quote, but what he's saying here, you get it, you're going to get it, it's going to be available to you. But what he's saying here, basically, is that the ability um, to respond to a future um, depends on a capacity and not abil an ability, and that is to project yourself meaningfully as an actor in your occupation or your field of practice, to be able to identify others through social relations in that field of practice. Um, and he says that this identity arises out of a particular social order through relations which the identity enters into with other identities of reciprocal recognition, support, mutual legitimization, and finally through um, negotiated collective purpose. He argues how are individuals to recognise themselves and others in this new future of trainability, and he says as consumers in markets and through our consumption. So just the current models of skill development. Fairly, it's fairly direct. Jobs need skills, you produce skills for jobs. Um, that's the argument. And this is um, particularly the case in, in uh, competency-based training, um, models of curriculum. They don't consider the person who exercises the skill, and skills are considered independently of people's bodies. And so we get a narrow focus on skill, this skill or that skill, not the whole person and how it, how it fits together. So the notion of skills is discrete. Skills are nameable, they can be broken down and defined as outcomes. And so I did fix this up. This is the problem moving from a Mac to a PC. So what we have in competency-based training is each unit of competency which defines a workplace task or role is broken down into elements of competency. Um, so, you know, all the elements that make up that task or role. And this is based on behaviourist assumptions that it's possible to break down tasks into components, including elements, performance criteria and other components. But that's not all. We have performance criteria which are necessary to determine if the elements have in fact been demonstrated to be achieved. Um, and this approach pr provides students only with access to contextually specific applications of knowledge. Um, they learn how to do one thing using a, a specific, uh, contextually specific application of knowledge. For example, they might learn a formula, but not how to use the formula in a different context or for a different purpose. They don't learn, knowledge is not under their control. And this leads, and this, this is related to the whole thing about micro-credentials, that the same logic applies to micro-credentials and badges as here. If you're going to, if you have a, an atomistic view of the world, which the world is made up of discrete components that can be moved around, um, then why not apply this approach to qualifications? And we have this in Australia called skill sets. And so it's, um, so instead of four, we have four qualifications, but we also have skill sets, which are a small number of units rather than the whole qualification. So rather than carpenters, and uh, we might have 
stair builders. And the problem with this approach is it fragments work and fragments knowledge and is deeply... Um, uh, this is opposed by the union uh, movement um, in Australia, even though they support competency-based training. We argue that everyone needs a college or a university qualification. We argue that everyone needs access to a qualification that has value in the labour market and in society. So what's missing? Well, the person who exercises skills, someone who has the broad ranging knowledge and skill, uh, skills and attributes that they need. And in order to be skillful at work, individuals need broader knowledge and skills, not just the specific, the specific skills needed for the job. We also need to have an understanding of the social conditions people need to exercise skill. They must have the capacity to support their families and contribute to their community. Also missing is an understanding of workplaces. We, um, we need to focus on how skills are used at work, whether people are encouraged to learn and issues such as succession planning, whether it is a workplace that actually supports agential workers or not. What's also missing is the whole person, and this includes supporting them to make a contribution to their occupation, their family and their community. So in conclusion, CBT, generic skills and employability skills in 21st century schools miss what's important in education, um, which miss what's important about education, including post-secondary education. Theoretical knowledge is absent. Uh, and the consequences of this are more severe for students from disadvantaged backgrounds. It also misses out the social context of occupations of individuals and leads to a fetish, a fetishisation of skills. And I'm playing with the concept that says that this is similar to Marx's notion of commodity fetishism and I'd be, like to talk to people about that at some point. We argue basically that students need access to powerful knowledge so that they can shape their field of practice and participate in society's conversation. Thank you. That's it. Thank you very much.